0: We've been reading from 1 Corinthians now for several weeks. Actually, now it's a couple of months. And we're reading through the book, and today we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, uh, this, I'll just tell you, you, you may be surprised at the content. If you haven't read it before, you may be surprised at what it says. The Bible's very practical. It says, we don't want you to wonder, what is it? Does it mean to be a resurrection person, to live the life that Jesus has prepared for you. So it gets right down to the nitty gritty and gives some very clear instruction. And so this chapter answers questions that the people in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth had, that they wrote to Paul about, questions about marriage. What's marriage all about? Marriage, in marriage, quit awing. So marriage, (laughs) marriage is God teaching us how to love somebody. That's what it's all about. Resurrection people live in love. We're emphasizing the fact that we're resurrection people because that's where Paul is heading in this book. We started with chapter 15, and then we've gone back to fill in In what went before, because he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the difference it makes for us. But but uh, all of that is wrapped up in the word love, not the word desire, the word love. There's a whole chapter about it, chapter 13. We'll get to there eventually. But resurrection people live a life of love. Often we don't do that very well, even though we want to love well. Sometimes we don't do it very well, even though we think we're doing a good job. We have to be, we have to be changed and learn how to love instead of being the selfish people we have a tendency to be. Now, most of the time we don't acknowledge or even recognize our selfishness, but just get married and it'll start showing up pretty fast. There's lots of different aspects to marriage, but in the book of Ephesians, the scripture tells us we're to love our spouse as Christ, loves us think how how extreme that kind of love is giving up self-will learning to stop asking what do i want and instead asking what will make my spouse to be filled with joy, what will make him or make her smile? Brides and grooms don't know what they're, they're getting into when they stand up and make the promises. Some of you could recite what the promises are, the traditional promises. It's not too hard for me because I've done a few weddings. I've only been married once, but I've done a few weddings. The bride and groom now they say oh yeah i know this is true but but they don't really understand the extent of the hurts and disappointments they're going to experience and they don't fully realize the depth of forgiveness and mercy that are going to be required of them when they say i i'll use my name i mark take you karen to be my wedded spouse to have and to hold from this day forward. from That's a long time. From this day forward. For better, for worse. Nobody thinks it'll be worse. Boy, are they wrong. Because we're two selfish people learning to love. For richer, for poorer in sickness and in health it makes a difference to love and to cherish until we are parted by death most people just think that's kind of a nice closing no that's the hardest one of them all to love and cherish there's lots of people who have been sexually faithful and think that's all it's about no you promise to cherish your spouse as long as you both shall live i bet you there's been at least a few minutes when you weren't doing much cherishing (laughs) but we promised we would we need to remember these things and paul here in this chapter he's reminding them now he is going to be talking mostly about the sexual aspects of marriage and um there's a whole lot more aspects than that. I'm quite well aware, so was Paul. So in other places, he talks about other aspects of marriage, and the Scriptures talk about the other aspects of marriage, which are all very important. But here, he's talking about the sexual aspects because as we've talked about as we went through chapter 5 and went through chapter 6, he, he's, he's talking to these people who lived in a sex-obsessed culture, We've talked about the fact that there were thousands of prostitutes, and these people, they became followers of Jesus, but they didn't realize the complete overhaul of their understanding of sexuality that 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 was going to mean. Some of them were still going to prostitutes, and Paul tells them, we read it last week in chapter 6, that's not what followers of Jesus do. They don't use people like that. And he said, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You remember this. So today we're going to read, we, we're not going to read the whole chapter, it's a long chapter. So we're going to read the first half of the chapter and we're going to talk about what it says. I would encourage you to read the whole chapter and see what it has to say. You see, sometimes people think, well, they don't talk about sexuality at church because that's not just not appropriate. Not in a crowd. Well, God has things to say to us about all aspects of our lives, and He created sexuality. And on all of the other days before He created uh, human beings and said, be fruitful and multiply, and there's really, I know the science has come up with some things here lately, but there's only one way to be fruitful and multiply, folks. He said everything else was good, but on that day He said it's very good. God doesn't have a problem with sexuality. He just knows it can be very destructive and harmful. That's why in chapter 5 and 6, there's so much about sexual immorality or fornication and how Paul keeps saying, that's not what Christ's followers do. That brings destruction. So so let's see what he does have to say to us and what is the truth of God for us concerning this. So verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they thought. That's what they suggested to Paul. Is that the way it is? But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer." then come together again so that satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control i say this as a concession not as a command i wish that all of you were as i am paul was not married but each of you has your own gift from god one has this gift and another has that now to the unmarried and the widows i say it is good for them to stay unmarried As I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanct- for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy but if the unbeliever leaves let it be so the brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances you know wife whether will save your wife so they say is this the correct statement it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman cause they knew they knew that all of this cultural stuff, which was very much the way and, and very much the attitudes towards sexuality that are that American culture today. They knew that was not what a follower of Christ would do, the way that they would live. So they just decided, well, maybe celibacy is uh, the, the way we're supposed to go. And Paul says, no. That's not right. He says, good idea for those who have a gift that enables them to do that and live at peace. But he says, since sexual immorality is occurring, if you have sexual desires, what are you supposed to do with them? God is the one who gave us the desires, and He also gave us a way to satisfy those desires, and He said, get married. That's God's plan. Get married. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. How does that work? He goes on to tell us. The husband fulfills his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, You say, well, that's just kind of nitty-gritty. Yeah, but that's where we live. And so Paul says, that's the plan. That's the plan. The wife does not have authority over her own body, which wouldn't have surprised those people at all, because in their culture, the husband had authority over everything. So that was not new news when Paul said, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Here's the peculiar verse to all of them. In the same way, Now, let's be quite honest about it. This is an area of life where it is difficult to have self control. It just is. It's not, that's not new news. It's been that way for millennia. But God had a plan, and God had a purpose. I I am a pastor, and people come and talk to me about all kinds of things because they don't know where to go to find out God's will and God's direction in different matters. So they come and ask me, what does God think about this? What does God think about that? I've had people tell me, it's my body, and I don't have to give it if I don't want to. Well, if you're married, the Scripture says, It is not yours. Some of you don't want to hear that. I know this. You say, it is too, mine. No, it is not yours. You gave it up in your wedding. That was a piece of it. That was part of what you gave. Paul tells us here, he says, abstinence pushes one or both of you toward immorality. So is that really what you want for your spouse? You made a different kind of promise. Now you may say, oh, well, no, I just don't accept this. Paul isn't just saying, well, this is the way it is, live with it. He's saying, this is what love is. Love is about giving yourself up. Not about getting other people to do what you want them to do. It is about giving yourself up. Now, of course, there are times, there are times, maybe it's sickness, or you decide you're going to spend your time in prayer, or whatever. There are times where, 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 you mutually agree that there is a time of separation he's not talking about living in two houses so there are times when when you mutually agree but he says that shouldn't be a permanent kind of deal that should be an oddity because you want you are the the person that god prepared to take care of your spouse he said, that's the plan. Otherwise, you're pushing them into bad places, and you would get upset if they went there. So, so why, do I, why does Paul, and why do I say, no, your body is not your own if you, if you are married? Here's words that are part of the wedding ceremony. You see, the words that are in the wedding ceremony are very carefully chosen. And the words understand, the people who chose the words, it didn't just happen, a guy sat down and said well let's write some words, you know, it happened over centuries that uh, Christians developed the words that actually express what Christian marriage is about. And a lot of people don't say much about sexuality at weddings, but everybody knows that that is a part of what it's all about. And it's in the words. Now you may say, there were, sex was not mentioned once in my wedding. I bet it was. You just didn't understand that's what the words were about. So when the promise Is made to have and to hold from this day forward. What did you think they were talking about? And you know, there are more. There are actually three places where promises are made in a wedding. Most people say those words that I said. They said those are the promises. No, actually, before there, there is a place where people make a promise. You've heard of people talk about the I do's. There's the prom. That's the first place of promise. Then there's the place of promise where the words are recited for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And then when the rings are exchanged, there is a promise that is made. So it's been modernized, and, and in the words that have been chosen in the modern version that people use now. You can't always hear exactly what they are representing. So presently when when people exchange rings, usually these words are said, I give you this ring as a symbol of my promise and with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But here is uh, the original that has been been put into modern English, and so so listen to it. With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. that's what it's talking about when it says I honor you with my body I thee worship that's what it's talking about I give my body to you and there's not a that's a wonderful thing that's a part of it now you may say well you know pastor I didn't need to come here a sermon about about marriage This is not just a sermon about marriage. This is a sermon about how having the love of Christ in our hearts works out in a marriage. But the principles behind it are the principles for living as a servant of Jesus Christ. It's not about, I'm in control, I'm going to get what I want, I'm going to figure out how to get you to do what I want. I'm in this for the outcomes for myself, though that is the way the world lives. And we all lived like that in all areas of our life when we were not a follower of Jesus Christ. But these words are about when you are a follower of Jesus, you become a giver, someone who looks not to their own interests. In fact, in Philippians, the scripture says, have the same attitude Which Christ had not looking to his own interests, but instead he emptied himself. So those who follow him empty themselves and live not for their own interests, but for the interests of the people who are a part of their life. It's called love. And it's not the same thing as desire. Too often is going to bring the blessing and joy of God to this person. And how might God want to work through me to do that? And the reason marriage is hard is because we haven't learned to do that yet. And some of our old selfishness kind of digs in its heels. Some people reject what Paul says because they say, if if i am going to control my spouse in any way this is the way by rationing this out that is the way i can be in control the first time someone said that to me i was kind of shocked it was like what does being in control have to do with love You see if you love people you give up control that's why some folks say loving is a very risky thing and it would be except for the love and the goodness and faithfulness of God and so So Paul is trying to help us all see. He's applying the truth of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's applying it right here to this aspect of marriage. But what's most important for all of us, regardless of our state in life, is are we living the love of Christ? That's the point. Are we living the love of Christ? And we have blind spots where we don't see the truth about ourselves. Just like Karen and I had lots of blind spots when we got married. She insisted we go to a marriage council, and I thought it was the biggest waste of time because we loved each other and we weren't going to need any help. Do you think I had a blind spot? (laughs) Yes, I did. Of course I did. So we need God's help to transform us and make us people who love. Love always trusts. That's a line from chapter 13 in this book. When he's talking about what love is like, he says, love always trusts, which makes you vulnerable. If you have trust issues, you need to talk to Jesus about it and tell him, I've got trust issues. You need to change my mind and my heart because if you have trust issues you cannot love. So the next section he says for the unmarried it would be good for them to stay unmarried he says if you're married you focus your life on what your family needs and 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 so a lot of your life is just directed that way he said if you're single you have a lot of independence. There's nobody relying on you. You can instead focus your life upon the mission of Christ in the world. And he said, That's a wonderful thing. He said, That's what I'm doing. So if you're single, I recommend that to you. But he said, If your sexual desires are so strong that you need to be married, get married. Do not sin. Then he had that section we read, he says, for followers of Jesus who are married to unbelievers. What do you do? What do you do? You say, what do you do? Yes, some people become followers of Jesus and their spouse says, well, I didn't take that on when I got married, and they walk. Some of you and I have friends who are in that kind of a situation. He said, I'm not going to put up with it. A... Go to church. We're used to gliss. They can't do with their spouse anymore because their spouse won't do those things that are in rebellion against God anymore. And so they walk. And so he gives the instructions there. He says, says, if they walk, don't fight them. Let them go, and you are free. But he says, don't pitch them either. If they're willing to stay with you, you don't know what's going to happen through your testimony and you're witness to them. So, there's more there. There's a whole lot more than what we can talk about, of course. But the point is, the point is, give yourself to people in the love of Christ. We've sung all about His love. Here is love vast as an ocean. You know why we sing that one? Because it's one of my favorite songs. The worship team doesn't like it. So it's the one song they sing because I like it. I don't make them sing the rest of the songs I like. <laughs> but it's the one song they sing because I like it. Because it's a beautiful picture of the vastness, the extent of God's love. And he wants that to flow through us to everybody. Now, it may be as we've talked to what Paul has to say, there's been some issues come up for you and you say, Well, what about this and what about that well of course we can't do all that in a setting like this so if you have some questions some issues then seek godly counsel not ungodly counsel there's plenty of people who give you ungodly counsel this is important seek godly counsel say here's my question help me understand this What, what what is the godly thing to do Here, in this situation, because I I am well aware that relationships can get really, really messy. So get godly counsel. Jesus has answers for you. And he wants you to experience his peace, his love, in your heart, in your relationships, throughout your life. And he wants you and me to bring his peace and love into our world so let us be faithful followers of jesus giving his love and we're going to sing about that right now so the worship team is going to come we're going to sing one more song about the love of christ and our love for him then we're going to ask for his blessing upon us for we need his blessing to be able to live a life of love, the kind of love that he had.